1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, Children of the Night. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Our journey east pauses us in Maryland, Cumberland, Maryland, actually. For those of you that have been listening to Sarah Koenig's podcast, Serial, it just wrapped up its final episode of this season yesterday. The serialized story features Adnad Syed and the murder he was accused of and convicted of. How that is significant is that his current home is at the North Branch Correctional Institution right here in Cumberland, Maryland. I used to pass through this town when I lived in Ohio and was dating, who would later become my wife, in Virginia. Although I usually just stop at the Sheets gas station on Virginia Avenue, in which the filling area, the laws of men and God, are disobeyed by all drivers. Otherwise, Cumberland, Maryland seems to be nearly devoid of mysteries, ghosts, Cryptozoic creatures, or really demons of any kind. Other than a few vanilla haunted houses and that sheets filling area, this may be one of the least horrific places in the country, at least by my ability to research. I'll assure you, the two stories that we hear tonight will be of quite a different flavor. Both of our stories tonight are narrated by Josh Roseman, so in between stories we'll be omitting the bio for Mr. Roseman, but after both, we'll hit you with it. Our first story of the night is Thus Was His Death, by none other than our friend Harry Shannon. Harry Shannon has been a singer, an actor, an Emmy-nominated songwriter, a recording artist in Europe, a music publisher, a VP of Carolco Pictures, uh, Terminator 2, Total Recall, and Rambo being of noteworthy titles, and worked as a freelance music supervisor on films such as Basic Instinct and Universal Soldier. He has an MA in psychology and has been a paraprofessional counselor since 1988. Many of his clients work in the entertainment industry. Although primarily a novelist, Harry has contributed short stories and novellas to a number of genre magazines and anthologies, including the highly praised Dark Delicacies 2, Limbus 2, Brimstone Turnpike, Tales from the Gore Zone, Small Bites, the Stone*, Double Down series, A Dark and Deadly Valley, and On Deadly Ground, a collection of western noir co-edited by veteran authors Ed Gorman and Dave Zeltzerman. His definitive collection, A Host of Shadows, is now available on Kindle. Mr. Shannon's novels include the Mick Callahan Suspense series, as well as Clan, Demon, Dead and Gone, The Hungry Zombie Books, and All the Devils, co written by Stephen W. Booth, and the well reviewed thriller, The Pressure of Darkness. He won the Tombstone Award for Best Novel with Clan and A Dark Scribble from Dark Scribe Magazine. His story, Night Nurse, and fiction collection, A Host of Shadows, were each nominated for a Stoker Award by the Horror Writers Association. Otto Penzler selected 50 Minutes co-written with Joe Donnelly of Slake Magazine for inclusion in the Best American Mystery Stories of 2011. Harry scripted the film version of the camp horror novel Dead and Gone, produced and directed by Yosi Sazen, and played a bit part as The Sheriff. The film was released on DVD via Lionsgate in 2008. Harry Shannon continues to write fiction and music. He sees clients by appointment only at a discreet office located in Studio City, California. He is married and has one child. And now, Harry Shannon's thus was his death.
2: The three young soldiers used a standard-issue metal battering ram to bust through a metal gate placed between the two slightly off-center pillars of concrete, the ram going clang and again clang like some macabre church bell. The cement had obviously been cut with sand because the wall rapidly exploded into fine white dust and the gate collapsed with a low booming noise and fell flat onto the patio. Eidson and Garcia went in first, night-vision goggles on, Fanning left and right, ready to spray the hell out of the premises at the slightest provocation, Hayden waited outside, throat dry and bowels loose. The garden wall was a good ten feet high, so Hayden felt his shoulders bunch up in a vain attempt to defend against enemy fire directed from above. But the anticipated ambush didn't happen. Idson and Garcia made short work of the front door. Hayden heard them explode loudly into the building, shouting and stomping, hoping to terrify any occupants into submission. Clear! That was Rudy Garcia, moving right through the Haji's kitchen, wearing night-vision goggles and a Chicano tood. To the left, silence. Outside, Hayden swallowed dusty air, swept the street behind them with his burning eyes. Not a raghead in sight, but that didn't prove anything. He had to go inside. Orders were orders. So, against his own better judgment, Hayden slipped through the gate, trotted heavily across the patio tiles, and peered through the front door. Idson. Hayden heard a thundering crash half a second later, followed by swearing in English. I'm okay. I just tripped, Ideson called. Jesus, it stinks in here. And then, after a few long seconds, Guys, we got bodies. Hayden felt his skin tingle and his gut go hollow. Bodies? Garcia, wire-thin and gang-tattooed, whipped by like someone on roller skates. Hayden held his position in the doorway, eyes awash in glowing green images, busily shifting to the street and back. Holy shit, Esse, Garcia said. Come on, check it out! Tom Hayden squinted through his goggles. He'd been in combat for two days. They were 40 miles west of Baghdad ostensibly chasing an insurgent named Mahajan through the streets of Fallujah. This whole section of the grid was cemetery quiet, even though half the 1st Battalion had been raising holy hell from door to door all night. They'd been lost since 0320. Man, this is gross. What do you figure happened? Jack Idson sounded genuinely disturbed, and he didn't rattle easily. Do you think these were hostages? "'Bad Ajis just behead their hostages,' Garcia said quietly. "'Dude, these folks look like they got skinned alive.' "'You've got to be shitting me.' The stench reached his nose. "'Don't breathe it in.' Curiosity got the better of Hayden. He eased through the opening and took a look into the large, empty bedroom. The world turned white, and his eyes slammed shut. "'Ouch!' "'Sorry,' Ideson said. "'Take off your goggles.' He'd already used his cigarette lighter and placed two candles in a niche in the wall, causing a bright flare in the NV gear. Hayden blinked rapidly, took in the room. He pinched his nose shut to protect against the odor. The windows had been boarded up, and the walls were covered with dark blood and a viscera that seemed to have been applied with a paint gun. He looked down, caught a quick glimpse of raw torso, flayed cheeks, and grinning skulls. Hayden grimaced, shook his head. Ideson belched. Oh, man, I thought I'd seen some bad shit, but... Garcia laughed. Don't blow chunks, dude. This is like a crime scene now. If you're going to hurl, you've got to do it outside. Ideson stepped carefully around his comrades and moved back through the living room. He went out into the night. Garcia and Hayden heard his vomit splattering through the dirt of the abandoned garden. We'd better tell Captain Walden. Calm is still down. Garcia replied. He looked at his watch. It's near sunup. I say we secure this location until then and pop smoke to call a chopper. They can mark the spot and take us home. You got rank. Hayden shrugged. He was still pinching his nose shut and covering his mouth. I suppose that's as good a plan as any. I sure as hell wasn't looking forward to hitting ten more houses on our own. Hey, Idson, you okay? They heard another coughing sound and then some dry heaves. Hayden coughed. Come on, Rudy, let's go outside. No, let's have a look around, Garcia said quietly. Just make sure you don't touch anything. Hayden felt a flash of adrenaline that made his body twitch. On the whole, he'd rather have slipped the NV goggles back into place and trotted back outside looking for trouble. He didn't care for being trapped inside with a stack of naked, mutilated bodies, but orders were orders. He lowered his laser-modified, silenced Heckler & Koch 9mm MP5 and found the flashlight clipped to his utility belt. He stayed back, swept the beam along the cracked mortar wall. He tried not to breathe too deeply. "'Garcia?' Hayden whispered. "'What the fuck is that?' Garcia moved closer. In the shadows, the putrid stench seemed to creep up his nostrils like twin tendrils of foul smoke. The wall was covered with what appeared to be writing, but this was no language Hayden, who'd had some college, had ever seen before. The weird symbols were boldly and broadly rendered, created in myriad macabre ways. Some were smeared in human excrement, many garishly painted in dried blood. Others had been carved into the wall before being stuffed with twigs and strips of human flesh. A large pattern cut into the brick resembled a pentagram. Some kind of cult shit, maybe? Garcia, closest to the scene, seemed oblivious to the horror, merely fascinated by their macabre discovery. Looks that way, Hayden said. He shifted further toward the doorway. He was determined to stay as far away from the evil markings as humanly possible. Besides, his night vision was beginning to return, and having his back to an opening made him nervous. Rudy, we made a ton of noise coming in here. We ain't seen a haji for almost half an hour, Garcia said. Then he abruptly leaned forward from the waist, like a conductor taking a bow, and examined one of the arcane patterns from only inches away. His nose wrinkled, but this time only half in disgust. Damn, I wish I had a camera. This is some wild shit, dude. Newsweek would pay a fortune for a story like this. M.I. would never let us tell it. You got that right. You pricks would censor the Pope. What do you figure happened here? Hayden shrugged. Like you said, looks like some kind of cult thing. Some folks got a little carried away, and a few others met Allah a lot faster than they wanted to. Let's get out of here. Fucking towel heads are all maniacs. You ever hear of anything like this in Islam before? Garcia shrugged. What's that supposed to mean, ese? Any religion spawns cults and weird offshoots, Hayden said, still easing away. He pinched his nose again and his voice sounded almost comical. Remember the Spanish Inquisition? Those good Christians cheerfully tortured people and burned them at the stake in order to save their souls. Garcia took a deep breath. He swiveled his head rapidly, and in the rippling shadows his eyes burned like coals. You defending these pricks? Hayden flinched involuntarily, took another quick step backwards. He held his breath, shifted the MP5, and clenched the stock in sweaty hands. I'm not defending anybody. I'm just saying, that's all. Look at this shit, man. Look around you. And by now, Garcia was moving in a slow, loping circle, still bent at the waist, those large orbs still glowing, reflecting yellow candlelight. The shifts in position made his voice seem to deepen and then echo off the stained floor tiles. He was now panting, heavily. Hayden followed carefully, cautiously, with very tired eyes. It was the room, the markings. There was something else here, something that writhed with a fetid evil. The place was alive, weighted, grim as a Chicago slaughterhouse. Hayden stared. Two female bodies were missing breasts, hands, and feet. One old man had been blinded and castrated. Genitals protruded from his toothless mouth. Savages! Garcia was still pacing, looking around, working himself up, swearing under his breath like a man possessed. His panting had intensified. Look. One giant Arab man was like some medical exhibit, perfectly skinned from the neck to the ankles, all bled out, bulging tendons and rigid musculature perfectly threaded with bluish veins. His face was covered with a white sheet that had been badly stained and splattered. His hands and feet were bound tight with wire that had cut deeply into the slender strips of untouched flesh. And check this out! Garcia leaned over the corpse. He was breathing so heavily his breath rocketed long, twin plumes into the morning air. Garcia reached down with his trembling right hand and yanked the cloth away, revealing a face still contorted by agony beyond description. The screaming mouth had been gagged with what appeared to be a tennis ball pierced with twine. Hayden said, Jesus. Jesus had nothing to do with this, Garcia hissed. You know what I say? Let's go find us a Haji family or two, right fucking now. We'll bring them in here and give them some of their own. What? What? I say we give them some of their own. What do you say? I'm not following, Rudy. Yes, you are. Let's get some. I mean, do all of them, bro. Just like this. Men, women, and children. Hayden had finally arrived at the doorway. He kept his weapon at port arms and called out. No answer. Hayden took one deep breath, then recoiled a bit. He let it out slowly. Meanwhile, Rudy Garcia dropped his weapon and straightened up. For a moment, his handsome face appeared normal. Hayden even fancied a bit of sanity had reasserted itself. It was as if Garcia were asking himself why he'd just said what he said. But then that wickedness returned, and he flattened himself against the stained wall, sniffing deeply at the smeared shit like a wild animal tracking prey. As he snorted, Hayden saw a long string of drool fall from his mouth, then ooze down one sleeve "'to the leg of his pants. "'I'd sin?' "'Hayden's voice startled Garcia, "'who spun around and issued an odd, crisp laugh, "'almost like the bark of a dog. "'He was bent over again, now down and to one side. "'His raised, empty hands had become claws, "'tense lips pulled back from clenched white teeth. "'He grinned. Meat, Garcia said quietly. "'He repeated himself, "'like a demented child determined to be understood.' meat. He seemed to have forgotten about the rifle lying in the dust, near his boots. Yo! It was Ideson, outside in the night, finally answering the call. Get your ass in here, Hayden said, as calmly as he could. I think we have ourselves a situation. Idson edged away from his own pool of vomit. He gathered up his rifle and canteen The metallic sounds clanged faintly off garden walls and barely reached the gory room where the two men stood, eye to eye. Rudy, Hayden said, I am going to move on outside now. He raised his MP5 for emphasis. Come with me. Garcia's eyes went crafty. Hayden saw him gauge the time it would take to reach his own weapon, aim, and fire. We leave this to my MI guys, Hayden said, You were right the first time. We go into the yard, and come morning we pop smoke and take a bird home. Garcia chuckled. You can't feel it. The sentence seemed oddly garbled, half statement and half question. You can't feel it from over there. Oh, I feel it, Hayden said. Let's get out. Garcia leaned back against the wall. He took another deep breath from nose and mouth like a man inhaling the finest possible tobacco. God at work, he whispered. Flesh returning to the earth smells so sweet. Thick saliva was now pouring from his half-open jaws. Hayden nearly shot him between the eyes then and there, but Ideson appeared behind him in the dark living room. I'm sorry, Ideson said. I just... Hayden's attention wandered for a dangerous half-second. Sensing the change, Garcia threw himself flat on the flayed male body and grabbed for his rifle. Hayden swung his MP5 around and up, but Garcia had already aimed his own weapon, so Hayden backed into the living room without firing, just as Garcia released a short burst that struck the doorway and left divots in the splintering wood. "'Shit!' That was Eidson, who was now right behind Hayden, too damn close, and the two collided and fell backwards into the living room. Hayden floundered on top of his friend, tangled in gear, arms and legs akimbo. He rolled away to position his back to the corner, fought back up to his knees. Garcia appeared in the doorway, and by this point, something about him was both below and beyond human. His face was suffused with blood and contorted with a consuming lust for pain He held his weapon too high and slanted, like someone unfamiliar with its design. When he pulled the trigger, the rifle kicked up. he lost control of it and peppered the floor. Three rounds caught Ideson in the lower leg. He shrieked and writhed, his own weapon forgotten. Garcia cocked his head like a demented parrot. He seemed to have forgotten Hayden. He dropped his gun, pulled his trench knife, and came forward. Hayden let him move well into the room, Dropped to his knees near Ideson, who was just beginning to make sense of the situation. Hayden's mind raced. He grimaced. Suddenly, he lowered his weapon. Garcia stabbed at Ideson, who cried out with pain and bewilderment. The first try glanced off the body armor. Rudy, don't! Ideson tried to scramble backwards. Garcia followed. Another stab slipped under the side of the chest plate and went in deep. Hayden figured it had struck a lung because red froth bubbled from Ideson's open mouth. Garcia moved even closer, pulled his friend's hair back, and cut his white throat. A pulse of thick fluid popped out. Another. And another. Garcia let Ideson fall to the floor. Hayden waited. Garcia seemed to remember Hayden's presence. His face turned puzzled, then ecstatic. He turned slowly, on bloody knees, knife held low and wide. You do feel it, he said. He smiled fondly from father to child. You do? Yes, Hayden said quietly and nodded. I do. He had left the MP5 on automatic. His one long burst tore Garcia's head, arms, and lower legs into several wet pieces. Hayden sighed. He shook his head to clear the ringing from his ears. Took a deep breath. Orders are orders. That stench. Hayden reached into his belt and produced the small cell phone he'd been issued. He punched in send with no idea what number he'd reach. A brusque female voice answered at once. This is... The woman cut him off. We know who you are, soldier. We found the site. Hayden glanced at his GPS and relayed some precise coordinates. Whatever it is, this is some scary shit, lady, just like I was told. You are alone now? It's done. Stay put, soldier. Smash that phone. Affirmative. Out. Hayden dropped the cell phone and crushed it with the butt of his rifle. He backed into the corner and surveyed his handiwork.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: It would be clear to observers that Garcia had gone psycho at the crime scene, killed Ideson, and then forced Hayden to shoot him dead. Hayden felt reasonably satisfied there wouldn't be any untoward complications. He didn't know exactly what had happened to Garcia in there and he didn't want to know. Orders are orders. By dawn, Hayden would be on his way back to Kuwait, and later in the day he'd make his private report to the military intelligence officer who'd given him the assignment. Sorry, Hayden whispered to his dead friends. But he didn't actually mean it. Not really, because in some strange way the whole bizarre experience had felt exciting, uplifting even. All in all, quite exhilarating. Hayden leaned back, deciding. Finally, he took one long, deep breath, and then another. He began to gather weapons and ammo. Thus was his death, in
1: keeping with his life. Ovid. That was Harry Shannon's, and thus was his death, as read to us by Josh Roseman. Our next story will also be read by Josh, so stay tuned for his bio. Our second story of the night will be Mother and Child Reunion by Thomas Smith. Thomas Smith is an award-winning writer, newspaper reporter, TV news producer, playwright, and essayist. His published articles, short stories, essays, celebrity profiles, and travel writing articles appear in numerous books, magazines, journals, and multimedia outlets, including Barber Publishing, Adams Media, Group Publishing, Pocket Books, Bar Charts Publishing, The PPI Group, Barnes & Noble Books, Borderlands Press, and Zondervan Publishing. He was selected as part of the writing team, including Rick Warren, Chuck Colson, Lee Strobel, and Ravi Zacharias, to create Zondervan's New Men's Devotional Bible. He writes the monthly The Writer's Life column for the Christian Communicator magazine and also writes the How Not to Get Published column for Christian Fiction Online magazine. He is a three time American Christian Writers Association Writer of the Year. Thomas has been a joke writer for Joan Rivers and a comedy writer for The Steve and Kathy Show, Emmy winning Christian TV variety show. Interesting fact. Thomas may be the only writer to ever work on projects with Stephen King and the Reverend Rick Warren at the same time. Born in 1958, he is considerably younger than many people born the same year, and with the exception of publishing related bios and social media pages, he very seldom refers to himself in the third person. And now, Mother and Child Reunion by Thomas Smith. Eddie Grant watched
2: the clock on the kitchen wall while his mother lit another Marlborough. She had only been in the house five minutes, and was already chain-smoking. Some things never changed. She had always managed to find something to hide behind. Vague excuses, a cloud of smoke, whatever was handy. Couple that with the fact that he had been away for a while, and they never really communicated very much in the past anyway, and the sum of the equation was less than encouraging. Becky Grant blew a column of smoke toward the ceiling at the same time as her son Eddie cleared his throat. She looked at him, really looked at him, for the first time in a long time. She saw the hard profile of a young man, formed from the face of the young boy she remembered. He felt her stare, felt her taking him in. Shoulder-length, dishwater blonde hair, sharp nose, and thin, hard-set lips. More than once he had heard her say how lucky he was, that he resembled her side of the family and not his father's, the son of a bitch. Every time she talked about his father, she followed it up with son of a bitch. And as far as he was concerned, she was right. But that was all behind him now, all over. Her voice brought him back to the here and now. Eddie? Eddie, are you okay? She was leaning across the battered formica table, the smell of cigarette smoke heavy on her breath. She touched his arm and he pulled away. Yeah, I'm okay, he said. He turned his head slightly to the right, so he could see her a little better. I was real surprised to hear from you after all these years. I don't even know how you found me. What's the matter, he asked. Didn't you want to be found? His voice was ice. Becky Grant sat back in her chair, stubbed her cigarette in the ashtray balanced on her left knee, the ghost of a Holiday Inn logo still visible under the residue of age and nicotine. What do you mean by that? Of course I'm glad you found me. Eddie settled back to his original position. That's not what I asked. Night was starting to settle, just outside the dingy window. The advancing gloom light spread shadows over the landscape of dirty dishes in the sink. Evening was on its way, and time was short. There would be no second chance to make everything right. Neither spoke for a long moment. Mother and son sat in dark silence, contemplating their next move in this familial chess match. Eddie broke the silence. You just disappeared. Gone, without so much as a kiss my ass, go blind or anything. His throat tightened with the effort of actually saying the words. His eyes narrowed. Eddie turned back to face her, his face a mass of shadows. You just left me... Damn it, eight years old and you just left. He turned back to face the clock on the wall, his mood and profile darkening by degrees. Becky leaned forward and reached for Eddie's arm, and the ashtray clattered to the floor. Neither seemed to notice. She spoke, and he pulled away from her again. The fabric of his leather jacket was cold, and the cold seemed to seep into her voice. Left you? Is that what you thought? that I left you? I didn't. He cut her off. Left? Abandoned? Call it whatever you want to. All I know is one day you were there, and the next... He spread his arms and shrugged his shoulders, his body little more than an extension of the shadows around him. Once again, Becky extended her hand toward him. This time, however, instead of touching him, she jabbed the formica tabletop with her index finger for emphasis. "'Well, let me tell you a little something. "'You're not the only one involved here. "'You're not the only one in this family who has had it rough. "'And if you'll listen for a minute, "'I'll tell you why I did what I did.' "'Eddie shrugged. "'I don't expect an explanation. "'I just think it's time to make things right.' "'Well, then hear me out, and maybe we can do just that.' "'She lit another cigarette, picked up the fallen ashtray, "'settled back in her chair.' and launched a new column of smoke into the room. I never planned to marry your father, the son of a bitch. The hard cold fact is, one night we went to a party and had too much to drink. One thing led to another, and I wound up pregnant. That was you. She paused to take another drag and watch her son for a reaction. There was none. Becky continued, We argued for two days. Finally, your father said he would marry me. The son of a bitch thought he was doing me a big favor, but feeding his big-ass ego is what he was doing. He didn't want any of his buddies to think he couldn't take care of his mistakes. They were his exact words. I take care of my mistakes. We were married later that month, ran off to South Carolina and had a honeymoon, if you can call it that, at South of the Border. We ate bad Mexican food, bought fireworks, and came home the next day. Eddie remembered home. A dirty little trailer in a dirty little trailer park. More than anything else, he remembered the walls of his home. Walls so thin you could hear everything that went on in the surrounding rooms. Everything. Becky got up and walked over to the windowsill to retrieve a book of matches she had seen earlier. She felt around for a light switch. Can we turn on a light? It's getting dark. Eddie didn't move. I like it this way. Besides, this won't take long. She headed back to the Kmart special chair on her side of the table. Okay, she said as she lit the next cigarette. Where were we? Eddie looked at the clock. Home. Oh, yeah, she said. Home. It sure didn't seem like much of one, did it? He didn't rise to her attempt at bonding. She waited a few seconds and continued. I had always pictured something much different. I always thought there would be romance, love, and a little house with a picket fence and a garden, you know? Now she was speaking to no one in particular. Her voice had taken on a softer quality, but that, like the waning light, was short-lived. Yeah, that's what I wanted, but what I got was shitty diapers, a shitty house, and a shitty life. Eddie turned to face his mother for the first time in nine years. Yeah? Well, we all got more than we bargained for, and personally, I'm not real impressed with your story so far. Big damn deal. You had to put up with a little shit. Well, whoop-de-doo, what we're dealing with here is family and the truth, not some fairy tale world. Truth. The venom in his words hit the target, and he knew it. Bullseye. Dead center in the little red circle. This was what he had come for. Truth. Becky Grant didn't disappoint her son. She half stood, palms supporting her weight on the table. Okay, you want it this way, we'll do it this way. Yeah, I put up with shit, but I put up with more than a little. I put up with a ton of it. I put up with your father's drunken rages, his alternate beatings and tit squeezings, his cheap shots at what he called the peace he married, and his taken off for days at a time and leaving me with no car, no money, and two crying kids. She paused to let the anger dissipate or increase, whichever it chose. In the meantime, she broke three matches before she was able to light the next cigarette. Becky was running on pure disappointment and high-test hate. You said you wanted truth? Okay, truth it is. She sighed, and out it came. I hated you, and your sister. I realize now that it wasn't your fault. But back then, I just wanted you both gone. And since that wasn't possible... I figured my being gone was the next best thing. What did we ever do to you? Becky spread her hands. You didn't do anything. It's just that every time I looked at the two of you, all I saw was him. All I felt was him forcing himself on me. I smelled his sour breath and felt his rough hands. You were part of him. And that was enough. Eddie settled back into his seat content in the fact that she was hiding behind all kinds of smoke now. It was almost time. Becky was back in her seat, but she still leaned forward, as if waiting for another shot from the boy across from her. None came. Eddie, why are we doing this? I haven't seen you or your sister for nine years. She has a name. Becky stopped short. I know your sister's name, but Connie isn't the issue here. You are. Eddie glanced at the clock and turned to his mother. Mother, dear, I'm afraid you're wrong about that. Almost time. We were part of him, but we were part of you, too, and you left us. That was the worst part. You didn't even stop to consider that we were part of you, too. Baby, that's not true. Her voice lost some of its edge. "'At first I was glad to be away from all of it. "'You, Connie, him, everything. "'Then later I tried to get you back, "'but by then you had all moved, "'and I didn't have the money to find you.' "'You still could have taken us with you.' "'The seventeen-year-old voice carried all the hurt "'and disappointment its ears could hold. "'Her shoulders dropped with the increase "'rather than the removal of an invisible weight. "'Her head rocked back and forth.' It was almost time. Eddie, you don't understand. Hot tears pooled, then made their way down the life-ravaged landscape of her face. You don't. The words exploded. Like hell I don't. Do you remember who you left us with, huh? Did you think he was suddenly going to realize the error of his ways and mellow out when he found out you were gone? Huh? Did you think the abuse would stop? Did you? He was on his feet now, eyes aglow, fury rising. Let me tell you my story, Mom. The venom was back, stronger than he expected. Let me tell you about beatings. Let me tell you about being left alone for days on end. He leaned on the table and looked directly into his mother's face. Let me tell you about a father's drunken midnight visits to his little daughter's room. You want to hear the details? Huh? I had to hear them. He might have locked me in my room, but he couldn't lock everything out you want to hear damn it understanding waited just beyond the shadows oh my god baby i didn't know i didn't understanding dawned full and harsh her expression changed midnight visits you don't mean he the shadow that was her son nodded connie oh dear god where is connie eddie shook his head she's near And for the first time in a long time, she's okay. Or at least as okay as she can be. He sat down and motioned for his mother to do the same. 7.10. Almost time. Five more minutes. He heard sirens in the distance and started to smile. This wasn't the safest neighborhood in town, but it was better than the trailer. The color drained out of Becky's face. The cigarette she held between her fingers dropped to the floor, unnoticed. Near? How near? Upstairs. Becky stood and headed toward the living room. She turned in every direction, looking for the door that would lead her to the stairs, and ultimately, to her estranged daughter. Connie? Connie, baby, it's me. It's Mama. Come on down, honey, and let me see you. In the midst of her urgent dance, she sensed the hand on her arm more than felt it. Don't. She won't answer. The whirling mother stopped. What do you mean she won't answer? I'm her mother for Pete's sake. Of course she'll answer. She attempted to pull away. Connie, come on down and let's talk. Okay, he said. Can't answer. Not yet. Come with me. Becky followed him back into the kitchen. Though part of her wanted to find her daughter, part of her couldn't resist the pull of her son. Sit down. Becky looked around, bewildered, and did as she was told. Between the sirens outside, the realization that her daughter was in the house, and her son's strange behavior, things were starting to move too fast. I want to see Connie. I want. It's a little late for what you want. In fact, It's too late. Too late? What do you mean too late? Eddie reached in his jacket pocket and placed a white bundle on the table. I mean that Connie called the police the minute she saw you drive up. Then I shot her. You what? Something hot and wet touched the back of her throat. Something that tasted like spoiled milk and bad meat. Eddie fingered the hole just behind his right ear. His hair covered the entrance wound fairly well, but the exit wound was a bit harder to conceal. The evening shadows at his mother's state of mind had helped, though. I shot her. Like I told you, I came to make things right. The sirens were a little louder now. You see, this is where we moved after you left when you couldn't find us. It isn't much, but it sure beats that trailer. His laugh was hard and cold. It's much quieter. But enough chit-chat. I don't have much time. Becky looked at her son as if he were a bug under a magnifying glass. Like I said, we found out today Connie is pregnant. A small sob ripped itself from Becky Grant's throat. No. She looked into her son's coal-black eyes. Yes. Daddy. Daddy. The horror of the situation was starting to come home. Now be quiet. This takes a lot of effort. Eddie was starting to fade into the shadows. Open the handkerchief. Unable to do much more than follow directions, Becky pulled away the corners of the handkerchief and exposed a Taurus 9 millimeter pistol. What? Like I told you, it's time to make everything right. When Daddy came home from the plant, I confronted him told the bastard that I knew what he had done, and then shot him. Next, Connie and I spent the rest of the morning working out the rest of the details. Becky picked up the pistol and turned it over in her hands, fascinated. He continued, So, Mother dear, it's probably just as well she can't answer you. I don't think you would like what she had to say. The sirens were louder now. When you drove up, Connie dialed 911 and reported a shooting. Since this is the wrong side of the tracks, it takes about 12 to 15 minutes minimum for the police to come to this part of town. After she hung up, I put a pillow over her head and shot her. She was smiling for the first time in years. He paused to give the statement a chance to make a home in his mother's heart. Then I shot myself. I timed it with your closing the car door. In about a minute, the police are going to come in here and find three bodies upstairs and a gun with your fingerprints all over it down here. Becky, teetering on the edge of sanity, dropped the pistol. Why, Eddie? Why? Because, Mother, you were the only one who could have stopped it. You could have taken us with you. She shook her head. No, son, I couldn't have done anything. I didn't know. There was a knock at the door. Daddy was an asshole. We were kids. But you, you had an out. You could have done something. But since you didn't, I did. Knocking again. Louder. Voices. Open up. Police. I believe that's for you. Eddie was fading. Becky Grant stood up, took a step toward the next room and turned back toward the kitchen. Her outstretched hand reached toward empty shadows.
1: That was Thomas Smith's Mother and Child Reunion, as read to us by Josh Roseman. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, lives in Georgia, the state, not the country. His writing has appeared in Asimov's Escape Pod and the Crossed Genres anthology Fat Girl in a Strange Land. His fiction has been reprinted by the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine and Starship Sofa, and his voice has been heard on two Escape Artists and all five District of Wonders podcasts. He is a 2013 graduate of the Taos Toolbox Writing Workshop. When not writing, he mostly complains about the fact that he's not writing. Find Josh online at roseplusman.com or on Twitter at at listener 42 links will be in the show notes and that will be our show for the week children of the night join us again next week for another episode of tales to terrify